0: All right, like Jimmy said, my name is Aaron, uh, one of the members here at Rock Hill, uh, also a member of our preaching team, uh, which is a group of guys who uh, really try to get better at uh, preaching and teaching of God's Word uh, ab- across both campuses, because Dean needs a break. Uh, he, uh, and we need to hear from someone else other than Dean. Um, so Dean's off hunting this weekend, so far so good, I think, right, Sherry? Things yeah. are going well, yeah, he's safe, so that's good. He'll be coming back next week, so you can look forward, to... that's... That's good. That's good news. That's good news. Well, it's my pleasure uh, to preach from God's Word today. Uh, we will be uh, continuing our series called The Thread. Uh, we are, we're, we're walking through the whole Bible and seeing how the thread of Jesus weaves through all the books and tells one cohesive story. Um, so, this week we'll be in the book of Micah. Um, and so, if you want to turn your Bibles to Micah 6, uh, verses 1 through 8, if you don't have a Bible, Jay's going to be coming around. Uh, if, slip your hand up, uh, feel free to grab that. If you don't own a Bible, please take that. That's our gift to you. Uh, we want all, all people to have God's word uh, to read and study and ask questions and wrestle over. So please take that uh, if you do not have one. Um, so we're in the Old Testament. Uh, if you've been following with us, we're kind of going in a weird order if you look at your Bible, uh, but we're going in chronological order uh, through, the, through the book of the prophets. So last week we're in Isaiah, this week we're in Micah. They, they occurred almost at the same time. Um, but the Old Testament tells the story of cr- the creation of the world and everything in it. It tells how man and woman were uniquely created to be equal image bearers of God and have dominion over the earth so that every square inch of earth would teem with life wilderness would be subdued and put into order and God's glory would spread and cover the earth see earth was meant to be a paradise where man and God would dwell together glorifying God in the splendor of his creation and all that mankind was required to do was to obey and to be holy and they would be able to enjoy God in this paradise he created for them forever but before long, we see the marring of God's good creation. Our first parents were unfaithful to the one command that God gave them. And everything in God's perfect creation was then fractured and cursed. God could not remain in perfect relationship with his people because man and woman had become defiled by sin. Through one sinful act, an insidious sickness fell upon the earth, cloaking all creation in its darkness, dysfunction, and disharmony. A sickness that afflicts, afflicts and infects all future generation, including our own. It doesn't take a, a brilliant scientist to figure out that our earth is broken, our world is fractured and disjointed. We are afflicted in disunity and arguing. It's not as it should be. But even in the fall, even in the midst of that first darkness, hope was promised. The thread was first revealed. And a promise that one day the seed of the woman would undo the curse of the fall and the earth would be returned to the harmony of its former glory. Throughout the Old Testament, we followed the descendants of the seed of the woman in God's chosen people. Israel was set apart to show the the joy and contentment of living under the rule and reign of the one true God of this world. So that one day all the people would proclaim, There is none like you among of, of among the gods O Lord nor are there any works like yours all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you O Lord and shall glorify your name you see Israel was the people through whom God would bring relief and ultimately heal man's terminal sin condition you see and this morning we get to look at the book of Micah where unfortunately we see Israel not living out the purpose God had for them rather than being a healing salve to the painful wounds of sin That sin has inflicted on the world. Instead of pushing back the darkness and devastation of sin, they're exacerbating it. They're making it worse. They're committing atrocities against themselves and against the other nations. Israel is living in direct opposition to God's law and contrary to their ultimate purpose as a people. And Micah warns them that judgment is coming. Because their leaders have become wealthy through theft and greed, their prophets, who were supposed to be heralds of God's good news, have been corrupted, selling out good fortunes for anyone who's willing to pay, not speaking on God's authority but on their own. Israel is not a place of blessing, but it's a place of oppression where the church and state collude to do evil together. Justice is replaced with bribery and preferential treatment of the rich. Kindness and compassion and mercy are replaced with criminal exploitation of the poor in direct violation of God's laws. Israel seems to have forgotten that they're God's chosen people living under God's protection in order to fulfill God's purposes in the world. They're living as though they know better than God, and they can pervert God's law to suit their own means and justify living in outright rebellion. And before you condemn Israel, remember that you and I are no different. We're not better than Israel. We would have failed just like they failed. And we do fail. We fail to live out under the fulfillment of God's law. We do not keep the law. Sure, our sins might look different, but at the heart, our problem is the same. See, we too think that we know better than God. We so often think that we can live in rebellion because we're a bigger deal than God. My life is ultimately about me. So the question I want you to keep in your mind this morning is what will God do with his obstinate and rebellious people? What does he do to a people who are living in direct rebellion to what he has intended for them? Does he just let it go? Does he wipe their sins away under the rug and go, yeah, it's it's no big deal. They're my kids. Cut them a break. Does he change his plan and abandon Israel? Does he forsake them? Does he renounce his promises to them and find another people? God starts addressing the issue with Israel by bringing forth his prophet Micah to accuse his people. So let's look at our passage for this morning Micah 6, verses 1 through 8. Starting starting in verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. The Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression?" The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? So notice how God does not start by outright accusing Israel right away. Like a good litigator, God lays the foundation for his claims that he'll be making. So God metaphorically calls court to session, where he can put his character on display. He calls upon metaphorically the mountains, the foundations of the earth, to hear, to witness his accusations, and to be a character witness for himself. And this is really easy to pass over, but God is showing Israel that just as the mountains and the foundations of the earth have long existed, pre-existed them, God is far older than the foundations of the world. In fact, he spoke them into existence. God is humbling them. He's reminding them that he's not some idol made of silver or gold. He's not some passive hunk of wood in a tent. He's not some ethereal idea or symbol of morality. He is the creator of the world. And therefore, he and he alone has power and authority over it. He and he alone has authority over those who dwell in his world. And on top of that, the mountains and the foundations of the earth are God's character witness. See, they witness God making his covenants with Israel throughout their history. The mountains were there for God's covenant with Noah when he promised never to flood the earth and destroy the earth by flood. They were there when God made his covenants with Abraham, the founder of Israel, promising to make him a great nation, more vast than the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. And this nation God would use to bless the nations. You see, the foundations were there when God made a covenant with Moses saying, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples. You shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the mountains were there when God's covenant with David was made. And he promised that I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity or sin, I will discipline him with the rod of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. So already, just by calling court to order, God is showing not only his character, but he's humbling Israel. He's eroding their foundations of any arguments they may use to cast blame against God for their sin. But God's not done. Like a good prosecutor, he starts his opening argument with a rhetorical question. He says, oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Specifically, what have I done to weary you? So keep that question in mind when we look at verses four and five. God continues, he says, "'For I brought you up from the land of Egypt "'and redeemed you from the house of slavery, "'and I sent, you, I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam.'" Oh, my people, remember when uh, Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened for Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So here we see God's opening argument. We get to see God's faithfulness on display. And there's a lot to unpack in these verses, but if I could just summarize what God is saying, uh, He's saying, I am the God who redeems you, who protected you, and keeps my promises to you, so that you may know and remember who I am. And what I'm like. So first, God, uh, let me unpack these stories. So first, God uh, harkens back to the Exodus, where people, his people were enslaved for 400 years to the Egyptians. Their wealth was taken from them. They were forced into grueling manual labor, and they were unable to worship God freely. But God heard their cries, and he sent them Moses and Aaron to topple Pharaoh and to free God's people by judging Egypt for their sins but passing over Israel because of the blood of the sacrificial lamb that was covering them. The Exodus reminds Israel that God redeems his people from literal slavery. This actually happened. He did this for their ancestors. But he also is foreshadowing a greater redemption from the slavery of sin. Redemption brought through the blood of the perfect sacrificial lamb. The second story is about Balaam the prophet and his encounter with Balak, the king of Moab. This one, I'll admit, is a bit of a deep cut. So if you don't know this, don't feel bad. You're not alone. Um, But Balaam was the prophet um, back in the time uh, of Numbers 20 or 25. Uh, And basically, the the Moabites were enemies of God's people. Uh, And so King Balak heard uh, that Israel was on their way to the promised land and his, his kingdom was in their way. And he knew that they were toppling city after city, nation after nation. And so he figured out, maybe if I can get their prophets to prophesy against them, maybe I'll be able to save me and my people. And so that's what he does. He sends messengers out to go and try to bribe and entice uh, Balaam to be able to prophesy against God's people. But God intervenes. God says, no, no. And three times uh, he, he intervenes, he steps in on behalf of his people to ensure that God only blessed them, that Balaam only blessed his people, much to the dismay of the king. And then lastly, uh, Shittim and Gilgal uh, represents uh, Shittim and Gilgal, this is very also easy, easy to miss. Um, you see, after God delivered his people from Egypt, he sent them on a journey to the promised land where they could, be, where they could dwell and worship God freely. And Shittim was the last place that Israel dwelt before inheriting the promised land. Gilgal was the first place that they encamped in the promised land. So Shittim and Gilgal represents God's faithfulness to Israel during their entire journey from exile to the promised land, from slavery in Egypt to the promised land where they could worship freely. And it was a reminder that God kept all of his promises along the way. In fact, even in Shittim, before they, right before they leave to go and enter the promised land, God has to discipline his people for worshiping a false god. And even that wouldn't prevent God from keeping his promises to his people. So ultimately, God's opening argument is that I am the God who redeems you, who protected you and keeps my promises to you so that you may know and remember who I am and what I am like. What have I done that you have become so weary of being my people How has my love and care and protection over you been so burdensome that you seek protection and redemption and hope from somewhere else? Answer me. But Israel has no answer. And neither do we. I invite you to answer that question for yourself. For those of you who are Christians, what has God done in your life that causes you to be dissatisfied in him? What has God done that makes you think that anything else can provide for you what God has provided for you in Jesus? Many of us will say nothing, yet we live our lives as though our education or our bank account or our spouse, our hobbies, our health, our family are gonna be there for us when God isn't. We set up these functional saviors, things that provide to us what we think God is withholding from us. And those are the things that we run to when life gets hard, when we get stressed, when we feel despondent. So I would encourage you to consider your your actions, how you live your life, and how would they answer the question, what in your heart causes you to be unsatisfied with God? And we've all been there. This isn't meant to heap shame on you. We all wrestle with this as fallen men and women. But when we wrestle with these questions, we get to see the beauty of the gospel. If you're not a Christian, I want you to consider what are you looking for to redeem you, to ransom you from the bondage of sin, to protect you and care for you? Who will be there for you in spite of your worst moments? Who's not gonna cancel you? Who's not gonna disown you? But is going to work with you and love you and discipline you and correct you? You see, in his opening argument, God is calling Israel to consider their behavior in light of God's character and mercy towards them. And between verses 5 and 6, there's the there's shift in tone, where it's no longer Micah speaking, but it's, it's Israel, or a representative from Israel speaking. And in that shift, it almost feels like they've, that moment has sunk in, where they realize that they're in the wrong. And just like us, when we are confronted with our sin, we have two choices, We can humbly agree with God, confess our sin and repent, or we can harden our hearts and justify our actions, showing that we know better than God. So let's see what Israel decides. So Israel offers a settlement, but in that settlement we see man's hypocrisy on display. Because all of us want absolution from the wrong things that we've done, regardless of your religion, your worldview, your political leanings, your nationality, all humans, all of us, we want the wrong things that we've done, the bad things that we've done, not to be held against us. So Israel asks, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? And this sounds like a great question. I think that's a great question to ask. That's a question that we all have to wrestle with. But, it, but what comes next shows that Israel is not sincere in this question. They're not choosing to repent of their sin, but to justify themselves and their lifestyle before God. They continue Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You see burnt offerings, calves, rams, oil. Those were all elements of either offerings or sacrifices that God required in the law. So in some ways they're not totally off there. But these things are being escalated so extremely and absurdly. Thousands of rams, 10,000s of rivers of oil. How does someone sacrifice a river of oil? Let alone 10,000. That's ridiculous. And then the ultimate low blow, offering their firstborn son. God never required Israel to sacrifice their children. But the pagan gods did. And there's two ways that we can look at this list of sacrifices. First is that they're being offered up kind of like a, like a teenager, overreacting for getting caught. Overblowing these charges and these offerings in order to show how harsh and how unfair God is. Israel could be painting God as some unhinged evil tyrant whose demands are so ludicrous that he's no no better than a pagan God. The other interpretation scholars land on is that these are rich people who are just willing to buy their way out of trouble. Remember, one of the things that Micah was called to address was that the leaders of Israel were becoming rich through oppressing their own people. Stealing land that God explicitly told them not to and profiting off of Telling, using their positions to, to prosper their own bank accounts. Israel appears to be utterly disassociated from this devastation their sin is causing their brothers and sisters. They've become so callous towards justice that atoning for oppression of their own people and defiling God's name, perverting the purposes for which God has called them is, an emo, is as emotionally burdensome to them as it would be for us to pay our Netflix bill. Yeah, it's no big deal. How much do you need, God? What do you, what, what, what's going to cover this? That's the attitude that they're showing. So, whether you think it's the bratty teenager or the rich, the rich person, the heart of the matter is that these two verses give us an exact description of the character of, of hypocrites and habitual sinners who hope to obtain God's favor by performing certain external ceremonies. And are willing to purchase their own pardon upon any terms, except that of reforming their lives. One of my favorite Bible teachers likes to say, if you can't say amen, you better say ouch, after verses like that. That's (laughs) convicting. They are willing to purchase their own pardon upon any terms, except that of reforming their lives. That's been incredibly convicting for me this week. I mean, think about it. How often have you asked God to take away your anxieties or your guilt or your bitterness or your anger or to help you through a situation or to come in and rescue you? And you're willing to offer up anything except actually changing the way that you live, changing how you view sin, changing how you view God, changing how you view yourself. My fear is that many of us, are when we are convicted of our sin in our own lives, we just brush it off. We think that, you know what, if I just, if I just buckle down now, if I live my life starting now, I'll be good. God will be happy and, and, and I'll get to heaven when I die. Or maybe we, we think this, you know, I have this huge evaluation coming up or I've got this big project or I've got this big thing in my life in a couple weeks, so you know what, from now until then, I'm gonna live clean, I'm gonna be good, and God's gonna owe me. God's going to owe me that that project or whatever it is goes well. It sounds crazy, but we've, we've all thought it. I'm sure we have. Or maybe you're going to say, I'm going to be the nicest person. I'm going to be the most generous person. I'm going to volunteer whenever I'm needed. I'm going to fill every need that I can. But inside our hearts are still desperately sick. Because we won't stop and take a look at our own life at our own heart. Friends, if we think this way, we miss the point just like Israel. You see, they want to atone for their sins, which is not a bad thing. It's good that our sins could be atoned for, but they've mistakenly believed that being forgiven of their sins is the ultimate good that God wants for them. They forget that God doesn't want sacrifices. He wants his people to live holy lives. He wants no sin He wants them to commit no sin that needs to be forgiven. You see, the law wasn't given primarily so that people could be forgiven of their sins. Yes, it was, and praise God for that. But the law was primarily given to show them how to honor God with their lives, how to be a blessing to the nations, how to live out their purposes that God created them for. God never meant the sacrificial systems to be permanent. He gave Israel the law on tablets of stone, knowing that one day the law would be written on people's hearts and that one day the perfect sacrifice would be made and that would put an end to all the sacrifices needed from God's people. He would make a once-for-all atonement for their sins and for the sins of the world, and God's people would be forgiven once and for all if they believe in his Son. You see, the, the law was meant to point out our need for saving. And it was meant to show us how God requires his people to live. So what does God truly want from his people? Verse 8 tells us, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. That is what God wants for his people. He wants us to act justly. He wants us to love kindness and mercy and to walk in humility with him. In one word, he wants us to be holy. You see, God's not some crazed IRS auditor who wants to milk us for every single penny, crushing us with burdensome sacrifices and, and all of those things. He wants us to live in joy and he knows the only way we can do that is if our chief joy is in him. And so like a good father, he strips those things away. He disciplines us until we can see that only glorifying God, only pouring our lives out for God's purposes Will, be, will give us joy and will truly satisfy our souls. But you see, Israel already knew that. Knowing what God requires of us does not give us the ability to do it. Otherwise, Israel, they, they wouldn't have needed all the prophets. They wouldn't need to be reminded over and over and over again of what God said. Even again, in verse 8, he says, he has told you. So this isn't breaking news. I'm not giving you new information. I'm repeating what you already know. You and I, we have the same problem. Simply knowing what God requires of us isn't enough. We need to be reminded every day that we have sinned, that we fall short of the glory of God. So what do we do? How on earth can we reach God's requirement of doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with God. See, you and I, like Israel, we must first confess our inability to live a life that pleases God on our own. Our sinful nature has wired us to just to delight in sin and to scorn righteousness unless God changes our heart, gives us a new nature because without God intervening in our lives and changing our hearts, we are hopeless. We're plagued by sin and we are doomed to be separated from God forever. But even Micah, in the book of Micah, we are, there's hope. There's hope for Israel. So why don't you turn with me to Micah 7, uh, just a page over, 7, uh, verses 7 through 9. And these two verses show, how, show Israel the hope that they have to be healed from their sin, even if they're unwilling to see it at the time. And I have to admit, these two verses are special for me. I've struggled with sin my whole life. I still do. I especially struggle with the sin of of self-hatred and being overly harsh with myself and being critical, pouring up guilt and unfair accusations upon myself. And this passage has been incredibly helpful ever since a friend of mine shared this with me in college. And I hope it's a, a source of hope for you today. Micah 7, 7 through 9 shows Israel how God will change their hearts to respond appropriately to his accusations. He starts, but as for me, this is someone speaking on behalf of Israel, representing Israel. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, for though I fall, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. What a picture of Jesus. Though I am guilty, I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So when you feel the full weight of sin, when you feel despair, when you hear those lies about you're worthless and that you're not worthy of anything, when your pride flares up and you feel that you're good, that nothing can go wrong in your life, we must remember God's character Only our God can redeem his people and save us from our sin. Only our God can protect us so that no one can take us away from him. Nothing can thwart his will from being done in our lives. And only our God will deliver us, deliver on all of the promises he has made to us. Though we fall again and again and again, we will rise. Not because we are good and we have our own strength and and maybe not even right away. God may want you to sit in darkness to teach you, to purify you, to show you how bitter and unsatisfying sin is. But even in that darkness, God will be a light of hope and salvation. In times of darkness, God works on our hearts so that we don't get bitter or resentful of God. In times of prosperity, God works on our hearts so that we don't become entitled and belittling of God. And by God's grace and humility, we accept his discipline and we bear his indignation because we realize we deserve a far worse punishment for our sin. You see, when we get God's discipline of his people, we see it not as his hatred of us, not as him being cruel to us, but as his mercy, as evidence that God loves us and that he is trying to take away the things that will not satisfy us. He disciplines and corrects us so that we may live lives of holiness for his glory and for our ultimate joy. Friends, we like Israel, we have hope in, God, in dark times because God pleads our cause and he executes judgment for us. This is the clearest glimpse of Jesus in the book of Micah. You see, unlike Israel, Jesus did live, did justice. Jesus loved kindness. Jesus walked humbly with his God his entire life. Jesus lived the perfect sinless life God requires for us. And if, we were, and if we wanted to have fellowship with him, Jesus earned fellowship with God and yet willingly took the punishment that we rightly deserved for our sins. Jesus took all of the sin for all of the world and he put it on himself and he died in our place. And because Jesus rose from the dead, never to die again, he now sits at the right hand of the Father, advocating for those who have put their faith in Christ. Imagine with me for a moment, God the Father sitting on the throne, Jesus at his right hand. And as our kids are learning this week in Rock Hill Kids, God is omnipotent, he's all-powerful, God is omnipresent, he's everywhere, and God is omniscient. So he's sitting there and he sees all. Every time you sin, every time you offend God, every time you fail to live how God requires you to live, and every time you deserve justice, you deserve to be punished, you deserve death. But instead of of receiving punishment, Jesus leans over to God the Father, and he says, Father, I bore his punishment I paid for her sin. Give them the kindness and mercy that I earned. Father, remember, when you look at them, you don't see them, you see me. You see my righteousness because I have paid their debt. Your justice has been satisfied. So pour out your mercy on them. Teach them. Holy Spirit correct them, convict them of sin, give them grace, for they are your beloved children. You and I get to look forward because God's justice has been satisfied. His kindness can freely flow to us. Kindness that reminds us that God's of God's character and leads us to repent, leads us to turn away from our sins and run to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we are now able to obey because we have been given the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sins. And we can now live lives that glorify God because Jesus is our righteousness. And we get to look forward to the day where we Uh, where we get to be with Jesus, he will bring us into the light and we will look upon God's vindication of his people, his triumph over sin and death, and ultimately join him in the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no more sin and death. There, there, There will be no need of the sun because Jesus alone is our light. So we have seen God call court to order, make his opening statement. Israel made this ridiculous plea bargain offer, but Israel has been found guilty as are we, unless we are covered by the blood of the Lamb. And now our sentence is to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. And in serving out our sentence, we get to put the gospel on display. You see, this all sounds great. Okay, all I need to do is do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. I mean, that kind of sounds almost like a, like a weird Christian Instagram bio, right? Like Aaron Tetzloff does justice, loves kindness, and walks humbly with his God, right? (laughs) But that's not what this is about. This is not merely a command. This is not a mantra for us to repeat or to plaster on coffee cups or to put on Hobby Lobby knickknacks. Many of us make the same error that Israel made in thinking that all God wants is a clean ledger. As long as my sins are covered, that's all that God really cares about. We're prone to forget that God has never been interested in our behavior as much as our heart and affections that accompany that behavior. You see, the gospel changes our motivations because Jesus has justified us or made us right with God. We are adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High, and we are members of God's family, and we get to enjoy the privileges of our new family, primarily relationship with him and relationship with one another. And our family is one that loves and worships God through obeying Him with joyful hearts. We're still required to obey. The standard has not changed. We still are required to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. But now we view obedience not as a means to be accepted, but as a means to draw closer to God, of knowing Him more intimately, of being known by Him more completely. And as we seek to love God and follow his commands, we will be able to give hope to the hurting and broken world we live in. Not because we're better or smarter or more competent than anyone, but because we've been saved by grace through faith. And we have been sent to show other sinners where their sins can be forgiven and they can be washed clean and healed from the disease of sin that plagues their soul. So as we close our time, I want to leave you with some final thoughts on how we can apply this passage to our lives. First, I know some of you might be thinking something like, you know, this sounds great, but you know, I've been a Christian for a while and and I just don't feel that following God is a delight for me right now. I don't get happy when I read my Bible. I don't really desire to listen to him. I don't pray. Or maybe you're feeling beat down right now. You're anxious, you're depressed, you're feeling hopeless and you just want to feel joy. Friends, I know what that's like. Any honest Christian will tell you that they've been there too. But friends, don't let your feelings speak louder than God's promises and God's truths. Regardless of how you feel, God's promise to redeem you, to protect you, and to keep you forever is still true. Jesus dying on the cross in your place is still sufficient because the blood of Jesus, God sees you as a daughter or a son whom he loves. When you're in a season of darkness, doubt, despair, remember God's character and nature, his faithfulness to you, and live like that is true. That might mean you're uncomfortable. That may mean you're in a situation where you don't know exactly what's right to do. But any act in an attempt to be living, following the Spirit, to be living a life of justice and kindness, that's what it's about. So if you help a neighbor and you might not have the perfect heart, that's okay. God can redeem that. But we need to trust that God will provide for us. When we're feeling dark and we don't want to read our bibles, we need to trust that God will speak to us. Maybe not that day and maybe not in a month, but he will. Secondly, how can we grow in justice in doing justice, loving kindness and walking in humility? Justice is kind of a nebulous term in our culture right now. It's been the meaning of justice has been diluted by by our culture and so I want to be careful here. But doing justice, I think is as simple as making wrongs right, holding the unjust accountable and see, seeing to it that the wronged are made whole. And as Christians, we should be eager to dole out justice whenever we can. We may not be able to end world hunger or human trafficking, We may not be able to do these great and mighty things, but we are called to take action when God gives us an opportunity. One practical thing that my wife has has really led the charge in our family for is growing our eyes to see the needs of others. One of the things that she often tells us and reminds us as a family is let's look for the needs of others and do what we can to meet them. This may seem trivial, but I've seen relationships start and deepen within our family and within our friends' lives because they follow the Spirit's leading to bring a meal to a sick family, to mow a neighbor's yard so that they could be with their mom states away and not have to worry about their house, to bring in someone a cup of coffee and just being there with them. What are ways we can push back the darkness, undo the effects of the fall in your spheres of influence and the people that you see daily? Think about that, rustle through that. Talk about that in your city groups this week. What needs can you be looking for and can you meet? So often God ministers mightily through us in the mundane and everyday things of life. So I encourage you to ask God to reveal those needs for you. But God doesn't simply want us to check boxes with our actions. Our actions ought to flow out of our love for God and out of love for our fellow image bearers. We should want good things to happen to others. We should rejoice when God puts us in a situation to care for others. For when we pursue justice with a genuine love, with genuine kindness, with a love for kindness and a love for others, we proclaim to the watching world that there is a better day coming. When Jesus will wipe every tear from our eyes, there will be no more injustice and everything wrong with this world will be undone. Think about it. No one wants to be ministered to out of duty. I brought you this meal. I hope you don't choke on it. No. No hey, I know that your guys are hurting. I know you guys are going through a lot and I just wanted to be there to help. Can I pray for you? It's that simple and also that difficult. How many of you have gotten a a text from a friend or a call at the worst possible time that they're in need, they need you, they need help? It's in those moments God calls us to love kindness, to love doing good. And a lot of times we just need to repent and say, God, give me the right heart. I don't want to do this, but Father, help me to remember that you first loved me. So let me show your love to these people. Lastly, we are to do all of this while growing in humility. This means we confess that we are not the all-powerful king or queen of the universe, but only God has the power and authority. We repent of our actions and our attitudes that would put ourselves on equal terms with God. We constantly remind ourselves that our lives are not meant to fulfill our purposes, our wants, our desires, but to love God and enjoy him forever and to obey all that he's commanded us. Personally, for me, I I journal my struggles with sin. But for you, it could be praying, it could be talking with God whatever that looks like. But whenever you find yourself convicted of sin or struggling to obey, ask yourself this question. What deeper need am I trying to satisfy with my disobedience? Or to put it another way, what do I believe my disobedience will get me that I'm not getting from God? And sit in that. Let God bring you the answer through your thoughts that come to your mind, through maybe through scripture passages that come to mind. And when you really answer these questions on the deepest root level of our sin, you will see that you are worshiping an idol, a functional savior, something that you think will provide what we ultimately need, something that only God can truly provide. And the more we do this, the more that we practice this, the more that we confess our sin and remember that God is a loving father who has already redeemed us and has adopted us as sons, the more we will see ourselves rightfully as his child, Someone who, love, who God will love us unconditionally and will continue correcting us day after day, shaping us more and more like him until he either returns or he calls us home to be with him. So friends, I hope from the book of Micah we can see that we are sinners in desperate need of Jesus. And he has, he has offered that to us in his son. One of the ways that we respond Uh, Here at Rock Hill, uh, to the preaching of God's word is through communion. Uh, And in communion, uh, it's not some ritual or ceremony that we do blindly, Uh, it's not something we just do because we're supposed to. It's an opportunity for us to remember the cost of our salvation, the cost of the atonement of our sins, that it cost Jesus his life. And so it's a time for us to wrestle with what God has put on our hearts to repent of our sin and to come forward outing ourselves as sinners in need of grace.